This is the word of the Lord. Please give it your full attention. For this is God's very word. Verse 13. Then the sixth angel sounded, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God. One saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. And the four angels who had been prepared for the hour and day and month and year were released so that they would kill a third of mankind. The number of the armies of the horsemen was 200 million. And I heard the number of them. And this is how I saw the vision, the horses and those who sat on them. The riders had breastplates the color of fire and of hyacinth and of brimstone. And the heads of the horses are like the heads of lions. And out of their mouths proceed fire and smoke and brimstone. A third of mankind was killed by these three plagues, by fire, smoke, and brimstone, which proceeded out of their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails. For their tails are like serpents, and they have heads, and with them they do harm. The rest of mankind, who were not killed by these plagues, did not repent of their works of their their hands. So as not to worship demons and idols of gold and of silver and of brass and of stone and of wood, which can neither see nor walk. And they did not repent of their murders, nor of their sorceries, nor of their immorality, nor of their thefts. This is God's holy word. Let us pray. Gracious Father, help us now to understand the rest of this most challenging and even dark dark passage and help us Lord in light of the darkness to see that there is hope there is assurance and confidence for the believer Lord I decrease that you may increase be glorified in Christ and we pray amen please be seated well saints we continue now our study through the apocalypse of John and I will encourage you this morning you will uh it would be it would do you well to keep your Bibles handy, to keep them near to you. We will be referring to God's Word quite often. When we last considered the book of Revelation, we examined the first twelve verses of the ninth chapter, that is the fifth trumpet. The fallen star, Satan, was given the key to the bottomless pit. He is commissioned by God to open the bottomless pit and to release the demonic forces throughout the world. These demons, they go forth with deceptive destruction. They deceive or destroy minds. They are like locusts who destroy crops. They are like smoke that blinds and obstructs the spiritual eye, the eye of the heart, if you will, from seeing Christ as Savior and as Son of God. Their poisonous lies, they deceive. They deceive people from the knowledge of the truth and from being set free from the author of truth, the Lord Jesus Christ. By the deception, uh, but this deception is limited. It's limited in that they are told not to hurt the grass or the trees, the earth or anything green. They are also told that they are not allowed to harm those who have God's seal. So they're There is a destruction that goes forth, but it is a limited destruction. Those who are sealed are the elect of God. They are those who have been given faith to believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. They will not be harmed. Now now listen to, to how. They will not be harmed in the sense that they will not be deceived by the lies of Satan. They will hold fast to truth. Now, does this mean that we who have believed upon Christ will never get anything theologically wrong? That's an important question. It was one of the questions that was floating around in conversation last week, which is beautiful to hear. No, it doesn't mean that we will not get certain theological things wrong, per se. The point is, though, that the believer will not ultimately be deceived. 
Meaning, at the end, they will not ultimately be believing the lies of Satan. At the end of the believer's life, he will not find himself in falsehood. That's how you are sealed by God. At the end of your life, you will not find yourself deceived. Praise be to God for that. We will not be pitied at the very end of our lives. We will not be ashamed at the very end of our lives for believing a lie. Now, I said in my notes, we will not find ourselves holding on to doctrines of demons nor belonging to synagogues of Satan. That's important. But what's also important is this. We all have blind spots in our theology. We all do. We all have holes that we're trying to, by God's grace and by His Spirit, we're trying to patch those holes up. God is helping us. Not all of us, I'm assuming, not all of us are able to articulate the mysteries of the Trinity or, or the wonders of Christology. Not all of us are able to do so. Will we be lost because of that? Because of our inability to articulate these things? Thanks be to God, no. Because then only Pastor Isaiah and James Dolezal would be saved, right? But we will not finally be deceived into believing that there is not one God in three persons. We we will not ultimately be deceived into denying the true divinity and true humanity of Christ. We might not be able to articulate all of the wonders and mysteries, but we won't deny them either. The one who denies them is the one who's deceived. We won't accept the heresy that there is something that we can do in order to earn our salvation, to add to the finished work of Christ. We might not be able to articulate all of the, the ins and outs of it, but we won't, we, we won't believe the lies. We won't be deceived. Because of God's seal, we are being preserved in our faith in Christ. Because of God's seal, we are being protected from the lies of the enemy. Because of God's seal, we will not ultimately be deceived. Praise be to God. And now today, we come to the six of the seven trumpets and to the releasing of the four demons. And with God's help, we shall... This is important, especially with this chapter. With God's help, we will seek to join the saints of old who are able to look at this passage and find comfort. We've read some dark things this morning, haven't we? And yet... The saints through all the centuries that Christ has reserved this church is able to look at this passage and in some way, somehow, hopefully we will see at the very end, find comfort even in this dark passage. So let's begin. Number one, demons from the Euphrates. Demons from the Euphrates. This is verses 13 uh, through 14. We'll be doing a lot of reading today, so I'm going to try to eliminate some of the passages where uh, we can uh, not have to go back to read as much. At the end of the 8th chapter, the Apostle John sees what appears to be a a, a flying eagle. It could also be translated a a vulture who is flying mid-heaven. And with this loud voice, he's declaring this. Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth because of the remaining blast of the trumpet, the three angels who are about to sound. These three woes, they are an announcement and a warning that there are three remaining, listen to this word, sorrows. Woe uh, is meaning sorrow. Woe is translated sorrow. There are three remaining sorrows. This sixth trumpet blast is the second great woe, the second great sorrow upon the wicked on the earth. Uh, you know the, the phrase, those who dwell upon the earth, is always in reference to the wicked. The fifth trumpet was the first great woe. The fifth and sixth trumpet, they belong together, and, and there are similarities between these two. What are the woes? Uh, they are an intensified judgment from God. Uh, we've seen four trumpets already. And now in these final three, there, there is an intensification of the judgment of God upon the wicked. The first four trumpets are God's judgment upon the wicked. The, the last three are God's judgment in an, in an intensified manner. Parallel. Just as the plagues of Egypt intensified God's judgment upon the wicked. 
This is the parallel there. As the plagues of Egypt intensified, so these final trumpets also intensify God's judgment upon the wicked. The first four trumpets, they're distinguished because the first four, they're most often referred to just as trumpets. The last three are most often referenced as or called woes or sorrows. The first four trumpets, they are related to the visible universe. So the judgment is seen agriculturally in goods and in services, through famines and through the visible earth, if you will, and in disasters. But these final three, they are, in, they are invisible sorrows. Uh, God has uh, put, brought forth his judgment in the first four trumpets visibly. But in the last three, it's, it's this invisible judgment that comes. It's a spiritual one. Revelation 9.12, the first woe is past. Behold, two woes are still coming after these things. These woes, they are God's final warning to humanity before the terrible day of the Lord. Terrible for the wicked. Wonderful for the righteous. When God comes in judgment. Keep this, this, this uh, phrase, warning. Uh, if you will, keep that warning phrase. Keep that in your back pocket as we travel throughout the rest of this sermon. We're going to need it later. This is what the imagery of the eagle is communicating. Very simply. Judgment is coming. Now, why is judgment coming? Judgment is coming, but but why is judgment coming? For, I would say, more reasons than we have time to explore this morning. But let's, let's consider at least just two very quickly. Our Lord in Matthew chapter 24 and in Luke chapter 17 said that when he returns, the spiritual condition of the world will be like like it was in the days of Noah. What was the spiritual condition of humanity? What was it like in the days of Noah? Genesis 6-5 testifies that wickedness was great on the earth. That every intent and thought of, of the hearts of men was continually evil at all times. Genesis 6-11 says, The earth was corrupt in the sight of God, and the earth was filled with violence. It is rampant depravity around the world. God would bring an end to the corruption of man through the, the waters of judgment in the flood. And so it is with the final judgment. It won't be by flood. Instead, uh, it will be by fire, God says. By brimstone. Man's corruption and, and, and uh, depravity continues to decay today. Man's conscience is progressively seared. We see this going on today, don't we? Man's heart is increasingly hardened. We see that going on today. Therefore, judgment comes in these fifth and sixth trumpets because man's, first, man's sin and hatred for God who is holy. Why is judgment coming? Because man hates God, God who is holy, and man who is not. This corruption has been going on. And will continue. It's been going on since Christ inaugurated his kingdom. And it will continue until Christ consummates his kingdom. It's been ongoing. One dear brother asked me, and I think it's a fair question. Because I've used this word cyclical. Cyclical means it happens in cycles. Uh, So the judgment that we're seeing, we're seeing it happen. uh, God's judgment happening in, in a cycle in a particular area. And then it will move on to the next. But then it will return to that same area again in an increased manner. One brother asked me, is, is, it, is it correct to say cyclical or should we say ascending since we're, we're heading toward the return of Christ? And, and my answer to that, I think, appropriate suggestion is that it's both. It is uh, coming around. It, it's cycling again in an intensified manner as it is going, leading toward the return of Christ. Because the world is not getting better. Unfortunately, for our post-millennial friends, it's not get, and it's not going to get better. It will get better in this. People will still be saved. God is still drawing His people to Himself. That is the only manner in which it is still getting better. And, and, and the hope that we have is that as the gospel is being preached, we are still looking forward to that day. But it's not getting better, per se. Culture is not going to be Christianized. We are hoping 
that God will save all of his people, all those who are his. And he will until he returns. This is all leading to the penultimate return of Christ. As was in the days of Noah, <clears throat> so it has been and so it will be until Christ returns. And this this shall increase until Christ returns. It's important, though, for us to keep this in mind. Christ warns that, decline, that humanity declines. The, the, the morality of humanity declines just before the return of Christ. In the same way that the first plagues of Egypt did not cause Pharaoh to repent, but caused his heart to become harder, so also these four, first four trumpets, they afflict the environment. Uh, that which causes the wicked to, to uphold their wicked lifestyles. But as these final three trumpets come, they don't cause repentance to come to the wicked. Instead, they cause the wicked to become even hardened in their heart. Now, the other reason for this uh, judgment that's coming is found in the opening verse, verse 13. Then the sixth angel sounded, and I heard it, we're asking the question, why is judgment coming? Number one, because man is sinful, God is holy. Secondly, why is judgment coming? Then the sixth angel sounded, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God, one saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. We'll get to that part in just a moment. The voice is most likely, we would say, the voice of Christ, because it comes from the comes from the four horns of the golden altar. It's from the altar that this voice comes. Now, the altar has a unique place in Revelation. It's both where the prayers come from and also where judgment comes from. The four horns of the altar. You, you've heard uh, in in uh, certain traditions grabbing on to the horns of the altar. Yes. This is a reference to, this is where power is. This is where also where, where mercy is. Four horns. It, it is connoting completeness and also power. Completeness and power. The command comes from the golden altar. You will remember that in Revelation chapter 6, the souls of those who have been slain, because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained, they, they are crying out to God. And where are they crying out from? From under the altar. We're getting to the question, why? What are they praying? They are praying, how long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? They are, they are asking God to be holy and true. And in these final woes, God's providential response is given. Pastor Isaiah mentioned last week, uh, when we pray, God doesn't go running to answer our prayers, right? Instead, the saints who are under the altar praying for God to be holy and true, they are commanded to rest for a while. Because there was still more who were going to suffer. It was in God's timing that God would answer this prayer. But now... Here in this sixth seal, God has providentially decreed to answer this prayer. The wicked have persecuted the saints, and the saints who are under the altar are praying for God to be holy and true. So why the judgment? Because man is sinful, God is holy, and God will judge sinners also because of the prayers of the saints. God has decreed to execute judgment upon the wicked because the saints are praying. As we will do this afternoon. The saints are praying for God to be holy and true. And therefore God, in His providence, decrees that He will answer this prayer at this particular time. The wicked will be judged. And how are they judged? Well, the Lord releases, if you can see in your mind's eye, now not literally, but if you can see the figure, the, the, the symbolism behind it, four angels who have been bound at the great river Euphrates. Who are these angels? These angels are released but they have been bound they have apparently been restrained against their will they, they want to carry something out and as we see it's devastation it's destruction it is death they want to carry these things out but they're not allowed to they're being restrained this would imply that these angels are not holy angels but wicked angels imagine 
uh, when you sometimes go for a walk with your family or go for a jog or something, and if you grew up in a neighborhood like mine, you most often will come across a gate that has a dog that will come rushing to the gate. And, and you can see in that dog's face, he wants every part of you. You could see, if he could just get, get those teeth on you. But he's being restrained by a gate. There's something that's stopping him. He's jumping. He is uh, frolicking at the mouth. Uh, Brother Scott and I actually went for a, a, a walk in the neighborhood, our beautiful east side neighborhood, where a few, uh, not, not one, but maybe a few, desired to devour him. They were not restrained. Here are these four demonic beasts who are being restrained from from carrying out their desire to kill. We'll get to, to, to what that looks and what that seems like for demons. They are a part of the demonic forces that are unleashed in the in the fifth trumpet. They are the last of those in in, in that first woe. And John uses. We're going to get to what this means. The great river Euphrates as a type of place, that's important, as a type of place where the demonic angels have been bound. I say type because in saying the great great river Euphrates, I don't want you to automatically think, as Timothy LaHaye does, that there are actual four demons who are in that river waiting to emerge. The river Euphrates has a biblical and contemporary significance. Let's listen to Dennis Johnson who notes this. And I'm going to read this part slow because it's important. In biblical history, the Euphrates connoted a source of oppression and a place of exile. In biblical tradition, it has this this tradition. Beyond the Euphrates River, sorry, stood ancient Nineveh. You know Nineveh. The place where Job didn't want to go. The capital of, a, of the Assyrian Empire that conquered the northern kingdom. And also Babylon, who carried Judah into captivity. Do you see what's going on with ancient tradition? The Lord had humbled and dismantled Babylon through the rising of the Medo-Persian Empire and had resettled his people in that land of promise. But prophets of exile still spoke of foreign powers such as don't let your minds go somewhere when when I say this word such as Gog some of you know Gog and Magog don't let your minds go where they normally go who would sweep down listen to this from the northeast from the Euphrates to afflict God's people for Israel beyond the border of the Euphrates symbolized this great threat And I would add that those threats were always sent by God as judgment for wicked, unfaithful Israel. So, when Israel hears Euphrates and beyond the Euphrates, they automatically would be thinking threat, threat from foreign nation, um, God sending foreign armies to judge us because of our unfaithfulness, God coming to judge the wicked for their idolatry. Are you with me? For those now, so that's the ancient Israel. For those who were living in Rome, in the Roman Empire in the end of the first century, the Euphrates River also meant something to them. It was on the eastern edge of the Roman territory. Beyond that were nations from the east. Especially, this is an ancient word, Parthia. You, you may not know the, the, the name Parthia, but you, you know it's um, modern contemporary which what is the, which is what it is referred to as today, Iran. Ancient Parthia, modern-day Iran, would often harass the Roman Empire's eastern outposts. And they were seen as a power who threatened their nation. They, they are there beyond the Euphrates River. Therefore, those living in the first century, the church who heard this, because they are aware of the, the common sentiments concerning those Nations near the Euphrates River, they would have viewed this phrase, Euphrates, in the same way that Israel would have viewed this phrase, threat and judgment. 
threat, and judgment. With that said, it's vitally important. Let's slow down now. I think maybe I am slowing down. It's vitally important that we do not abandon one of the tools that we must use in our journey through Revelation. That this book is meant to be understood symbolically. Why do I say that? Because for too many, the explanations like the one I just gave, it causes, listen to this phrase, geographical literalism. Geographical literalism, meaning this, that our eyes would shift from symbolic nature of this book, in which it's supposed to be interpreted, to then shifting our eyes to the Middle East, and shifting our eyes to the Northeast, shifting our eyes to Iran, shifting our eyes to Iraq, shifting our eyes to China and to Russia, Northeast, with suspicious eyes. Oh, those people there. That's where the demons are. These demonic forces, they have been raging against Christ and His gospel for the entire church age. Therefore, we are not to conclude that something, four demons, demonic, are going to arise from Iraq, Iran, China, or Russia. That's not the point that John is making. And, and usually, this is how much we've been influenced by uh, this Left Behind series and, and the false belief. We usually think that when these demons arise, they are going to attack Israel and America. Because we're the holy nations, aren't we? That's not what John is communicating. And that, that, that interpretation would have not been helpful for the first church who heard it. Centuries would have gone by without anybody really benefiting from that passage if that's what it meant. Rather, John is doing this. He's using two examples from the Old Testament and that which New Testament church would have known. Prophecies from Isaiah, prophecies from Jeremiah, all of these come from prophecy from Joel. To foretell that foreign nations, that, that foretell of foreign nations coming to, unjudge, to judge unfaithful Israel, along with other unfaithful nations, for their sin against God, and the perception that people in John's day had toward those nations beyond the Euphrates were seen as a threat to the Roman Empire. He's using all of these examples to communicate not physical armies that's coming. Especially when we hear 200 million, we go, oh, China has about 17 trillion people in and the, in the, they have a big enough army, right? That's not the way to interpret it. John's not talking about a physical army because the army was already unleashed in the fifth trumpet. They are hordes of locusts who come like an army. And they are a spiritual army. It's not a physical army. It's a spiritual army who are doing what? They're coming to deceive and to kill unto death. Deceive unto death. That's what's going on. That's what John is communicating. If we don't understand this in the spiritual manner that we are intended to understand it, then we're going to see these foreign nations and they're building up as ar of armies and saying, it's coming, it's coming. That's the futurist way of seeing this book, to say it's all in the future. It's all somewhere over there, rather than somewhere here and now. Is there not demonic armies that are deceiving the world right now? And not just from the east. From the west, the south, and the north. They are from, as John will say, they are released from the four corners. Revelation chapter 7. After this I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back four winds. What are the four winds? They are the four demonic demons. From where? From the earth. Not just from the east. So John saying that they're coming from the east is not for us to say they're only going to come from the east. Because in chapter 7, they're coming from the four corners of the world. Even this country. The four winds that are being held back are the four demonic demons who have been unleashed during the second woe. God's restraint on these demonic forces is now released. It's God's judgment against the wicked. The destructive winds at the four corners of the earth are unleashed against those who are void of God's seal. We must see all of the happenings of this world as, as being something that is influenced by Satan. Allowed by God, yes, influenced by Satan, absolutely. If we only view the things that are going on from all corners of the world as simply being um, 
immoral political policies, then we're missing the, the, the fundamental spiritual aspect of this. There is a spiritual war- warfare going on. It is raging. And it has been and will continue to until Christ returns. They come, not just from the edges of one empire, but from the edges of all empires in all directions. And they do come to kill and to steal and to destroy. But God does not send judgment to you, saints. The, 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 The forces that are coming... They can't harm you. They won't deceive you unto death. Will we die? Sure, we, we fear not those who can kill the body, but cannot kill our soul. We will die. We will be faithful, Christ says to the churches. We will be faithful even unto death. Because we know what awaits us after this temporal life. So we need not fear when we hear of these demonic... Little ones, when you hear of these demonic forces that are coming, that are here, when you hear of deception that will lead people ultimately to, to be deceived unto death, that is not for those who have their faith in Christ alone. If your faith is in Christ alone, little one, older one, middle-aged one, you need not fear. I love what the psalmist says in Psalm 91, you will not be afraid by the terror by night. Or the arrow that flies by day. Or the pestilence that stalks in the darkness. Or of the destruction that lays waste at noon. A thousand may fall at your right side. Ten thousand at your right hand. But it shall not approach you. You will only look. Look on with your eyes. And see the judgment of the wicked. You're not among them. If your faith is in Christ. You are not among them. You are protected from them. You are the, you are the sheep. They are the goats. Fear not these dreadful things if you've placed your faith in Christ. And if you have not placed your faith in Christ, then repent of your sin and turn to Him while today is still today. Secondly, the four angels commissioned to kill. The four angels are commissioned to kill. Verse 15 through 19. The four angels who had been prepared for the hour, day, and the month were released so that they would kill a third of mankind. Saints, demons and demonic forces are not out of control. We learned in the last chapter that Satan was given. He did not take. Satan was given the keys to the bottomless pit by the one who is the possessor of heaven and earth, Lord Jesus Christ. And now, these angels that have been bound are not autonomously creating chaos, even though they've been set free. Uh, Who has set them free? The, The one whose voice comes from the altar, God, right? We talked about that dog who, who when, when you go for your walks or your runs or whatever, he comes rushing to the gate and, and he's ferocious. Consider the ferocity, the, the, the darkness and the hatred, uh, the, the rage that is within a demon. His desire to, to ravishly uh, murder, destroy, kill with, with all malice and wickedness within him. You cannot even fathom, because you're a believer, that kind of evil. Uh, Those of you who like horror movies, I'm assuming, uh, all of them put together could not compare to the malice and the hatred that is within a demon and within Satan himself. Uh, They are compared to locusts. Who devour. They are compared to snakes and scorpions. Harmful things. And yet, in spite of all of these things, they are not allowed to utterly destroy all things. They are allowed to kill one third. Imagine if they were completely released. What kind of devastation they would inflict. There would be Literally nothing. They're only allowed to do 
what God has determined that they would do. God has not let their leash go, as it were. He's just allowed the, the length of it to stretch a little farther than it has in, in previous times. But at any moment, he pulls them back. That's enough. Notice, brothers and sisters, that John goes from describing four bound angels released to then a number that he heard. They, in turn, release demonic hordes that go forth. Again, it's the picture of the fifth trumpet expanded. But notice that John didn't say that he saw 200 million. He hears 200 million. That means that it's not meant to be taken literal. Just like in Revelation 5.11, when John sees myriads and myriads and thousands and thousands, it's not meant to be taken literal. It's meant to communicate there's this rushing sound of millions and millions of demons who are like an army of millions rushing to destroy. They're horses. He's hearing the sound of of, of 200 million horses, as it were. And their breastplates are the color of fire, hyacinth, and a brimstone. And their heads, listen to the the, the horrific description of what they look like. They are horses with um, lion's heads. And out of their mouths proceed fire and smoke and brimstone. Now, we know that these are not meant to be taken literal. There are no horses who have lion's heads and there are no horses who have uh, tails like scorpions. Praise be to God. But John is taking this image from Jeremiah 46. Let's go there. Jeremiah 46. This is the, the foretelling of the defeat of the king of Egypt from the east. And that would be Nebuchadnezzar. This dreadful army is meant to symbolize the type of physical spiritual plague and spiritual plague that, that is being unleashed. Uh, Jeremiah 46. Listen if you can hear some of the similarities between these two verses. Verse 1. <clears throat> Jeremiah is right after, I believe, Isaiah. Yes. That which came as the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet concerning the nations, to Egypt, concerning the army of Pharaoh Necho, king of Egypt, which was by the river Euphrates at Charchemish, which Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, defeated in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah. Line up the shield and buckler, and draw near for the battle. Harness the horses, and mount the steeds, And take your stand with helmets on. Polish the spears. Put on the scale armor. Why have I seen it? They are terrified. They are drawing back. And their mighty men are defeated and have taken refuge in flight without facing back. Terror is on every side, declares the Lord. Let not the swift man flee, nor the mighty man escape. In the north beside the river Euphrates, they have stumbled and fallen. Who is this that rises like the Nile, like the rivers whose waters surge about? Egypt rises like the Nile, even like the rivers whose waters surge about. And he has said, I will rise and cover that land. I will surely destroy the city and its inhabitants. Go up, you horses, and drive madly, you chariots, that the mighty men may march forward. Ethiopia, put that handle, uh, that handle the shield, and the Lydians that handle and bend the bow. For that day belongs to the Lord God of hosts, a day of vengeance, so as to avenge himself of his foes, and the sword will devour and be satiated, and drink its fill of their blood. For there will be slaughter for the Lord God of hosts in the land of the north by the river Euphrates. John is using what Jeremiah saw, and he is Applying it to what God is doing in the releasing of these demonic forces. In the same way that blood was shed as, as a result of God's judgment upon the peoples, so also God releases these demonic forces. They deceive people and they deceive them unto death. 
In the fifth trumpet, spiritual deception is allowed without physical harm. Here in the sixth trumpet, spiritual deception is allowed and so is physical harm. Out of their mouths they spew fire and smoke, which is deception. And then brimstone, which is intended to not only deceive, but to destroy. They will bring destruction upon the wicked. Later on in chapter or Revelation chapter 11, fire will also come out of two other people's mouths. The faithful witnesses. They will Fire will come out of their mouth as they preach the gospel. It is fire against the wicked. And the wicked will not receive it. In the same way that fire is used to destroy the wicked by the wicked, fire is used by the righteous to destroy the wicked. It's a faithful testimony. But they will not heed the message. They will remain in their deception. And their their deception will continue until their death. Consider that these horses have been armed with fire, uh, hyacinth. Now, there's there's some there's some discussion as to what hyacinth means. Is it smoke? Is it a stone? I'm really not sure either. But fire, smoke, if you will, and sulfur. Now, think about your biblical knowledge. You all are, are good scholars here. Where have you heard what 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 biblical historical event? first comes to mind when you think of fire and brimstone. For most of you, you would automatically think of Sodom and Gomorrah, and you would be right. This imagery is what is uppermost in the mind of John as he communicates the kind of destruction that's coming upon the wicked. Sodom and Gomorrah was not destroyed only because of sodomy. You know what sodomy is. They were destroyed because of every kind of evil and wickedness, including sodomy. God rained down on them fire and brimstone. This act again is uppermost in the mind of God, in the mind of John as he communicates how God's judgment is going to come. He sends forth these angels to destroy a third of mankind. Now, is this a literal kill or is this also a, a kind of a spiritual metaphor, symbolism? The locusts are not permitted to kill in the fifth chapter. In the sixth chapter, they are permitted to kill. What, what is this to mean? They kill the whole person. And it is literal. Physically and spiritually. They do not carry out the final judgment. That is reserved for God. But they prepare the wicked for final judgment. In ending their lives as they're allowed to. They cause, by God's decree, physical death of idolaters. They cause, by God's decree, physical death of compromisers. They cause, by God's decree, physical death of those who persecute the bride of Christ, the church. Those who do these things are already spiritually dead. And they will continue in that spiritual state unto final death. Now, what kind of death? Is it going to be the fire, smoke, and brimstone? At times, there are devastations that come upon the wicked. Sometimes the righteous, they are collateral damage along with what happens to the wicked. There are times when a building will collapse by an earthquake. The wicked are judged there. And there happen to be righteous who are there as well. Was that unjust of God to, as it were, have collateral damage where there are some rights who were also killed there? The answer is no. Because they did not die in deception. They died with their faith in Christ. Now, for those who have seen this, they may say, why would God do such a thing? We're going to get to what that means in just a moment. But if you die not being deceived, there is no injustice in God. Even if that means you happen to die alongside of the wicked who die in their deception. They die to deception to die again. You die in truth to live forever. What kind of death? All kinds of death. Sickness. Tragedy. War. Yes, war. Similar to 
the horsemen of the sixth chapter who bring war, famine, and pestilence. They are all interrelated. It's pictured as an awful, awful monster. Horse, uh, lion's head, scorpion's tail, fire, smoke, brimstone. All kinds of death. This would correspond to what our Lord said concerning the last days. And notice, let's go there, Matthew chapter 25, 24. How the Lord emphasizes both the physical and the spiritual of the end times. Matthew chapter 25. I'm sorry, 24. Matthew 24. (laughs) Matthew 24. Listen to our Lord concerning the perilous times. Verses uh, 5 through 14. Just listen to to this, this weaving in and out of physical and spiritual destruction. For many will come in my name, Christ says about the last the last days, saying, I am the Christ, and will mislead many. You will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See to it that none of you are frightened, for those things must take place, but that is not yet the end. Nation, rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, and in various places... There will be famines and earthquakes. That, that various places is where we get this idea of the cyclical nature of this. It's going on in various places. And it continues to go on in various places. But all of these things are merely the beginning of birthing pains. Then they will deliver you to the tribulation. Listen to this. And will kill you. I, I, I shouldn't have said that so like joyfully. And you will be hated by the nations because of my name. When the believer dies, it's no injustice. It's not something that God has not said will not happen going on. And at that time, many will fall away and will betray one another and hate one another. Many false prophets, there's a spiritual, will arise and will mislead. Also, the the spiritual is in when Christ says, many Christ will come in my name, saying, I am he. Uh, Many false prophets will arise and and mislead many because of lawlessness, because lawlessness, lawlessness is increased. Most people's love will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. That is the end of your life. If you endure to the end of your life, however it ends, you will be saved. This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. Uh, Real quick, for some of us who may say, well, what about the gospel going to Iran and to Iraq and to Turkey? Do you realize, and to Africa, that those countries were Christian at one point in time? They're Muslim in most instances today, but there was a time in which the gospel was preached there. The gospel was thriving in those places. From the time that Christ rose from the dead, he and his bride had been opposed. And this will continue. It's not hard to see that both physical and spiritual death have run rampant for centuries. It's been going on. Those demons have been allowed in God's providence to kill, and they have been killing. To deceive, and they have been deceiving. Countless have died. And with their death, spiritual death. Because this judgment has come for the wicked, not for the righteous. This physical strike of death for the unbeliever ensures their spiritual death. When, when the unbeliever dies a physical death, they also die a spiritual death. And that's for eternity. Those who die as unbelievers will remain in that unbelieving state for eternity. There will be no more chances for redemption. There will be no place where they can go wait and then receive forgiveness. Today is the day of salvation. John says... For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails, for their tails are like serpents and have heard and have heads, I'm sorry. Their tails even have heads. And with that, they do harm. The power that these demonic forces possess is in their tails. The the head of their tail is the mouth that also speaks the venomous lies. It's everywhere. It's from the front and the back. The harm that they have spoken is the same harm that is inflicted by the demons in Revelation 9.10. The power is in their tails. They sting. It is spiritual torment that leads to physical death that results in 
and eternal spiritual death. These are dark, these are dark passages for the unbeliever. The sixth trumpet is an intensification of the fifth trumpet. It's deception and death. The fifth trumpet, there was smoke that blinded. Now the sixth trumpet destroys. The demons will both torment, at least partly by deception, because their power is in their mouths, and then make certain that the spiritual fate of their victims remains by imposing death upon them. Is there any hope here? Let's go to our third point, and finally, verses. Tw- we'll read these actually. Let's go to verses twenty and twenty-one. What what a what a dark way also to end the verse. Let's look at it. <clears throat> the rest of mankind, that is the rest of the wicked, who were not killed by these plagues, did not repent of the works. The, the righteous don't need to repent of their evil works because the righteous have repented. Pers- meaning that this is not speaking of the rights for the wicked. Uh, were did not repent of their works of their hands, so as not to worship demons and the idols of the gold, of gold and silver and of brass and of stone and of wood, who can neither see nor walk. And they did not repent of their murders, nor of their sorceries, nor of their immorality, nor of their thefts. Saints, in spite of all of the darkness that has just been described, and, and I understand this is a heavy, a heavy chapter, heavy verses. These are not, um, when you're invited to go preach somewhere, these are not, this is not the verses that you would probably say, I'd like to preach on this today. In, in spite of all of the deception and all of the death, those who were touched by this deception, who but did not die, they were touched in some kind of way, they were afflicted in some kind of way, these are the wicked, and did not die, nevertheless, still do not repent. I love some of the faces I'm seeing. How? How in the world? They saw all of these things. They, they experienced all of this difficulty. They went through hell on earth, if you will. And still, they don't turn to God. How could they, how could they not repent? It shouldn't be shocking to us, really. Because we know people like that, don't we? All of the darkness that we've just read through, and we go, and, then, and still people don't repent. Well, you know people who have been afflicted by these demons. And still yet, they won't repent. They've experienced great suffering, great suffering. Suffering that you and I would say, I don't know if I could have survived that. And, and you're still here, and you still won't turn to God. They've been spared from certain death. You should have died. You, you're not. You're actually not supposed to even be here, um, logically. Suffer diseases, tragedies, crises, and still it does not harden their heart to the gospel. If anything, it makes them even more hardened to the gospel. They will say to you, Mom, I know, I know, I'm tired of hearing it. Grandma, I know, I'm brother, sister, cousin, whatever you are, I know, I'm t- I got it, I got it. I, we would think, how could you not see that you are being protected by God? Well, the, in some sense, they are being spared by God. Let me, let me say something that is not meant to be pr- provocative. It's meant to be what we just read. They're not being preserved so that they can repent, though. They're, they're not being preserved so that they can repent. In fact, it's the opposite. God will actually not have them repent. God is allowing certain believers, unbelievers, I should say, unbelievers, allowing them to live, allowing their hearts to become increasingly hardened toward Him in spite of all of the mercies that have been shown to them. For some of our ears, that's... That's really hard to hear. And for some of us, it doesn't even seem true. That God doesn't, doesn't, doesn't want them to repent. What verses automatically come to our minds? Doesn't God want everyone to repent? Doesn't God want everyone to be saved? Uh, aren't there passages that, that testify to the opposite of what you're saying? Well, let's deal with just a few. Second Peter chapter 3 and verse 9. The Lord is not slow about His, com- His promise, as some count slowness, being patient toward you. Not wishing, listen to this, for any to perish 
but for all. To come to repentance. What do you say about that, Pastor Antonio? Well, who is Peter speaking to? Because Peter has his audience in mind. The Lord is not slow about His promise to you, but is patient toward you, wishing that not any of you would perish, but for all of you to come to repentance. Who are you? First Peter 1 Peter 1, 1.1 says, To those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours, by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Repentance, the patience, all of you, is the church. It's the elect of God. He's been patient toward you. Praise be to God. He's been uh, merciful and, and gracious toward you so that you would not be lost because you have always belonged to Him. He has loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, you cannot be lost. And therefore, God has been patient toward you so that you would not be lost. Well, what about Timothy, though? Or Paul? Doesn't Paul tell Timothy that, that we should pray for various people because... He, he desires all people to be saved, First Timothy 2, 3. Well, there it is. He desires all people to be saved. I would argue, though, that Paul is speaking to and referencing all types of people in various positions of leadership that, that we should be praying for. Paul says, pray for kings and pray for this and pray for governors and pray for this because God wants all people to be saved. And that is all types of people in all types of positions, be they high or be they low. people from every nation, tribe, and tongue to be saved. In fact, Paul would be in opposition to Christ who obviously says in Matthew 25 that not everyone will be saved. If this idea of all being saved was actually what Paul was trying to communicate and we believe that there are no contradictions in Scripture. This judgment that goes forth is not so that the ones who have been marked by the beast would repent of their sin. This judgment goes forward so that those who have been marked by the beast will be brought to justice. Because God is holy and true as the saints declare under the altar. The Lord is not bringing judgment to the wicked so that the wicked sealed by the beast will turn from their sin. That would be a benefit for the wicked and there is no benefit for the wicked. Rather, the woes that God inflicts upon the wicked are meant to further harden the hearts of the wicked. Now, now you might, where do we get this from? John is using these seven, uh, these seven trumpets as, as a type of the ten plagues of Egypt. Were the plagues of Egypt intended to soften Pharaoh's heart? Paul says in Romans, no. God says in Exodus, and I will harden his heart. And he will not let them go because I will harden his heart. What's the intention of God? To save Pharaoh or to judge Pharaoh? It is to judge Pharaoh. We may say that doesn't seem right. God says in Romans chapter 9, you have no right to say who God can and cannot judge. Who God should and should not harden. It's up to sovereign God. Is there any injustice in God when God judges the unrighteous? No. Is there any injustice in God when God hardens those who are already hardened? No. Pharaoh had a front row seat to all the miracles of God. More miracles than uh, those who we know that should have died who still do not repent. Pharaoh saw more miracles than they did. <laughs> And he still didn't repent. His heart remained a stone. He was unwilling to turn to God. <clears throat> God has committed no sin in the punishment of the wicked. His mercy towards sinners and his justice towards sinners, toward the wicked, they are fully on display at the very same time. His justice and his mercy, his grace, they are on display at the, the very same time. One might wonder, okay, the eagle is, is circling. He's circling as a warning that sorrow is coming. What's the purpose of the warning if it's not meant to cause people to repent of their sin? What's the purpose of it? If, if the warnings, deception, and the death don't cause the sinner to repent, what is the point? Where then is the benefit? Uh, think back to the threat 
coming or emerging from the Euphrates. The winds of deception, they blow from the four corners of the world. They are coming to destroy those who are not sealed by God. Those who are sealed by God, they are protected from this, this demonic raging, right? They can kill the body, but not kill the soul. We have been given the Spirit as, as a deposit that we belong to God. Why are they coming to judge the unrighteous? Because God is holy and will not, will not put up with unholy people. They rejected Christ, His Son. They blasphemed the Holy Spirit. They persecuted the bride of Christ, the church. They trampled on the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. They put to death the prophets of God. They have stoned His messengers. They have opposed the truth because the truth is not in them. The saints, now here we go. Why? What's the benefit? The saints on earth have been declared guilty in earthly courts and have been justified in the courts of heaven as being innocent because they are in Christ. In heaven, because we are in Christ, we've been declared holy and blameless beyond reproach. And the saints of God cry out for God to be holy and for God to be true. Please tell me the benefit. For God to execute justice for the unjust verdict that was declared upon them when we were on the earth. Many have been burned at the stake. Many have been hung. Many have been killed for their their holding fast to Christ. And God has risen from His holy temple to execute judgment. He's commissioned Satan to open the shaft of the bottomless pit, to release the hordes of, of demons, to deceive the nations. What is more, God has released those demons who have been made for a particular time those who have been held back to go forth and to deceive and to destroy. Deceive and destroy who? The wicked. Those who are not yet destroyed will not repent. What's the purpose of all of this? It's so that you won't lose heart. So that you won't give up. So that you won't look at the world around you and say, what's the point? It looks like they're winning. It looks like I can't watch Disney anymore. It looks like I can't even watch a regular commercial anymore. It looks like all of our, our beliefs are being attacked more and more. That they're being trampled on more and more. Do you think that the first church you heard this was not, was not thinking in some ways the same thing? We've heard about the seven churches and all of the difficulty and the, the, the opposition that they face. Do you not think that they're reading these things while they're going through persecution, which would intensify? It would become illegal in a short time span, in their time, for, Christi- for, for Christianity to be practiced. And they're reading of these demons who are going forth. They're experiencing it. They're, they're hearing of these four winds that are being released. They're experiencing it. And so are we. And God's um, encouragement to them is don't lose heart. If you endure to the end, you will be saved. In spite of all of the wickedness that you see going on around you, don't lose heart. The saints are crying out from the altar of God and God is not, God is not ignoring them. Rest. He is holy and true. He will act righteously towards the wicked. They will not go unpunished. There will be a day of reckoning for the wicked. They will suffer for their violence against God and His church. Don't lose heart. Don't tell yourself it's worthless. What's the purpose of all this? So that you and I won't be discouraged. It's a dark chapter, isn't it? It's a dark chapter. And we think of all of the the, the friends and family that we know who are still walking in deception. It's a dark chapter. But it's not meant for you to lose hope. It's meant actually for you to see that there is light. That God will build His church and the gates of hell, they will not prevail. You will be sustained. You will not be deceived unto death. You will not die in falsehood. You will not die being a part of a synagogue of Satan. 
God providentially preserves our lives and God even providentially decrees our death whenever and wherever that takes place. We often think, I survived, God saved me. We also must say the same when we die. God allowed this time so that I might join Him and the saints in heaven under the altar praying for God to be holy and true. Where's my dad? We saw a video of him last night. Where where is he? He is under the altar. Oh God, how long holy and true? God is saying to him and to all the saints, rest a while. Rest a while. Judgment is coming. Rest. Surely God is working all things together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. The ungodly do not repent of the works of their hands. It is their hands that are acting this iniquity. It is their hands that are seeking wicked sin. God has sovereignly allowed them to pursue the wickedness of their heart. And John sums all of this up in their evidence of false worship. They worship demons, gold, silver, brass, stone, wood, and they won't repent. They've they've experienced all the darkness and they continue in their, their idolatry. Their job is still most important to them. Uh, Their careers are still most important. Their hobbies, their trinkets, all of those things are still most important to them. They've experienced all of this devastation and they still go back to the idols that they worshipped. In spite of them not seeing death. They start to gather them all. These, these, these make me happy. Enjoy them. It's the only comfort you will have before your eternal discomfort. They become like the things that they worship. They can't see, they can't hear, they can't walk. They have no life in them. So it is with those who do not worship the one true God. They have no life in them. They will stand before God one day and they will not escape judgment. They may escape, you, we may be looking at them today and saying, How could they do this? Look at what they're doing. I can't believe. And we have criticisms for all sorts of people in various positions, right? They won't get away with it. It's God's encouragement to the church. They won't get away with it. Yesterday or the day before, I saw a picture of someone whose face was painted the colors of the rainbow, holding a sign saying, we still have a long way to go. And listen to the rest of it. And we will never give up. It's the motto of the wicked. It's the motto of the demons. There will be a day when they will give up. They will be forced to give up. They will be thrown into the lake of fire. And they won't be holding any signs anymore. There will be no more mottos. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. To the glory of God. Let he who has an ear hear what the Spirit of God says of the churches. Let's pray.